So before we're saved, Ephesians 2 says, by nature, we are children of wrath, but now with our new nature, we are children of God, sons of God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We spent last week in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, and this is a marvelous section of Scripture because it addresses the power of the Holy Spirit in helping Christians overcome the sin nature that still wants to be prominent in our lives. This week, we reach the halfway point of chapter 8 and begin a look at the blessings of adoption that are also a part of the Christian life. Take the Word of God with you this morning. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is that chapter in the book of Romans that deals with the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. If you're with us in Romans 7, Paul recorded the intense struggle that every Christian has experienced in trying to live a godly life. He wrote in Romans 7.15, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am practicing what I would uh, not like to do. I'm doing the very thing that I hate. He said, For the good that I want I do not do, I do the very evil I don't want to do. And God led the Apostle Paul to record that struggle that he had as a believer for all centuries that we might find the encouragement and the victory that we need. And so God has been teaching us in this chapter of Scripture of the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we're learning how that victory comes through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. I want to begin reading precisely where we left off last time. I hope you brought a Bible. Romans chapter 8, beginning now in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the Spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Her name was Bertie Adams, and at the age of 71, she died in Palm Beach, Florida. The coroner's report said that she died of malnutrition. She lived in squalor, and they went to her house that was in great need of repair. And as they walked in, they could barely get the door open. And the house was just packed from floor to ceiling with things. She was the classic hoarder. I went into a home not too long ago in Washington, D.C. that a friend of my son's had bought. And I just couldn't believe it. And he said we had already taken two 20-yard dumpsters and filled it. It was just floor to ceiling with junk everywhere. And in Bertie's house, she had these little pathways in which you moved around and you found your way where you needed to go. Well, they wanted to find out who her family was to notify next of kin. And in the process, she had one thing clearly marked out, two keys that went to two safety deposit boxes. The police went, got permission to open them. And as they opened them, they found that she had 700 shares of AT&T and hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. This woman, who had indeed died of malnourishment, 
had over a million dollars. And in those boxes were the name of two of her relatives, a nephew and a niece that she had left it all to. Can you imagine getting that phone call? (laughs) We just want you to know that your Aunt Bertie died. You know, the one that you never wanted around, the one who never showered, the one who lived like a homeless person. She has left you over a million dollars. It's well been said, misers are weird, but they make great relatives. (laughs) Well, here in the eighth chapter, we've been studying our inheritance, some of the birthmarks that God gives us as a believer. And God has given us here in Romans 8 the keys to opening His safety deposit boxes to find out precisely what it is that He has given us. Now today, if you think you're living in poverty, you're going to see that God has blessed you beyond measure. Now, if you've been with us the last few times, we've studied already four of the five birthmarks. I told you we will be here at least eight to ten weeks in the eighth chapter of Romans. Let me just review for a moment those birthmarks we've studied. First, we saw that there was no condemnation. That cry at the end of chapter 7, wretched man that I am, is followed by a shout of victory. There is therefore now. We saw the key word was the word now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a marvelous truth that if you are no longer in Adam because you've received Christ and you are in Christ Jesus, God no longer condemns you because all of the condemnation your sin deserves, past, present, and future, was taken out in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's birthmark number one, and that ought to be enough to make you shout. Number two, beyond the fact that there is no condemnation, we saw that there is a wonderful liberation. Look at verse two. The apostle tells us the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And again, this is a privilege only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, it would be one thing for God simply to forgive us and to justify us. It's quite another thing for God to free us. And God has freed us in Christ Jesus. We've seen that just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, even so there are spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. And we saw at the end of verse 2, he mentions the law of sin and death. We saw that this law is that reality that we are all born marked for a grave. We're all born with both spiritual and physical death and potentially the second death, eternal death upon our souls. That man, shaped in iniquity, formed in iniquity, conceived in iniquity, because when Adam sinned in his loins was the whole human race. We are identified in his solidarity such that Romans 5 says when Adam sinned, all sinned. And so we are set as condemned children of wrath. But we saw there's a second law that liberates us. Beyond the law of sin and death, there's the law of the spirit of life, which we saw referred to the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, that sets us free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death was broken on the cross when Jesus died, but that power is only realized in the life of the Christian when we indeed experience the law of the Spirit in our life. And so in many ways, this portion of Scripture summarizes all of Romans chapter 6. We studied in Romans 6 that because when Christ died, He dealt not just with the penalty of sin, but with the power of sin. We no longer have to be slaves to sin. We can now present ourselves to God as slaves of righteousness. 
But that reality that Jesus broke the power of sin can only be experienced as we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so if you were with us, we compared the law of sin and death to the law of gravity. The law of gravity is that law that pulls objects to the ground. It is a law that you cannot erase or eradicate any more than you can erase or eradicate your sin nature, even as a child of God. But as an airplane moves down the runway, the law of aerodynamics supersedes the law of gravity. And so it is as you learn to walk in the Spirit, and it's a process. First, a baby crawls, then they walk, and they get up, and they fall, and they walk. But eventually, they begin to walk with some consistency. So it is for the child of God where the law of the Spirit of life sets you free from the law of sin and death. All right, that brings us to the third birthmark that we studied. There's no condemnation. There's a wonderful liberation. But we also saw there's an exciting obligation spelled out in verses 3 and 4. Notice. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Please note in your Bibles, He did not send Him in sinful flesh, for the flesh of the Lord Jesus was sinless. Nor did He send Him in the likeness of flesh. Unlike docetism that denied the humanity of Christ, the flesh of the Lord Jesus was real. He was fully divine and fully human. Truly God, truly human. No, the Bible says here He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh because the flesh of the Lord Jesus was both real and sinless. And He condemned sin in the flesh. He sent Him as an offering for sin. And so the just died for the unjust, the sinless for those of us who are sinful, Why? Verse 4, so that, here's the reason, here's the obligation, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So why did God send His Son? Not simply that we might be justified, but also that we might be sanctified. And verse 4 plainly tells us that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled not by us, but notice, in us. That's our exciting obligation. Then we looked at a fourth birthmark last week, if you're here, of God's glorious inhabitation. Notice verse 9, it teaches us one of the distinguishing marks of someone who is genuinely saved is that God the Holy Spirit lives in them. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So unlike any old covenant saint, The New Testament, the New Covenant saints experience something that they never knew. We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. We become temples of the living God. Remember, this was a promise that Jesus had made and was fulfilled beginning at Pentecost. Jesus had promised in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and He will send you another helper that He may be with you forever. Now, if you remember, the word another is a very important Greek word and cannot be translated with any single English words. There are two words for another in the Greek New Testament. There's the word alos, translated another, and it means another of the exact same kind. And then there's the word heteros, translated another, which means another of a different kind. So we speak of heterosexuals. We speak of heterodoxy. In contrast to orthodoxy, someone who teaches something that is different from what they should be teaching. And we see both used in the Bible. Jesus, if you remember Matthew 13, 
told a series of parables we call the kingdom parables. And with each parable, it says, and Jesus gave another parable, alos, another parable, just like the one that preceded it, that explains about God's coming kingdom. So there's another of the exact same kind, alos. There's another of a different kind, heteros. Paul uses both of them in one verse. We didn't read it last time. Let me give it to you. Galatians 1. He will write, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for another. It's the Greek word heteros. Some newer translations don't translate it literally. They just interpret it for a different gospel. But it says literally for another gospel, which is really not another. And then there's the word alos, the second another, meaning another of the same kind I preached. And it's no different today. People are preaching in Paul's words to the Corinthians, another Jesus. Or to the Galatians, another gospel. And just as the Galatians sometimes could not recognize a false teacher, many American Christians cannot recognize false teaching and false gospels and other Jesuses that are covering over the airwaves that people think are orthodoxy but are heterodoxy. And so Jesus said, I'm going to send you another exactly like myself, so much so that he can say in verse 18 of John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So here's the promise of the Lord's coming that is both simultaneous with his absence. Jesus said, I'm going to send another just like myself. And so in the opening chapter or sermon on this chapter, we saw that the Bible affirms the triunity of God. We don't worship three gods, we worship one God. And while each member of the Godhead is eternally coexisting, and yet they are eternally co-distinct. Yet, while they are separate, they are inseparable. And so we saw last time that the Bible teaches that we're indwelt by both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which you would expect because we worship one God. But the accent is placed upon God the Holy Spirit. And so in the same verse, it says that we are temples in essence of God the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ at the same time. I will not leave you as orphans. I, Jesus said, will come to you. Now, I know it's a paradox of sorts. He leaves and yet he remains. He goes to the Father's house to prepare a place for us, and yet he is with us even to the end of the age. He's promising, I'm not going to leave you as fatherless orphans, but in fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet said, the many titles of Messiah, he will come as the everlasting father. He will come literally to us and care for his spiritual children. Now, that brings us into the context this morning. There's no condemnation. There's a wonderful liberation. There's an exciting obligation. There's a glorious habitation. But the fifth birthmark we need to discover is the intimate adoption. The intimate adoption. Now you'll notice the title of this morning's sermon is called The Blessing of Adoption. There in your note-taking outline, there are three truths that Paul underscores that I do not want you to miss. Number one, adoption brings the Spirit's leading. Adoption brings the Spirit's leading. Now, Paul describes our adoption with, with all of its implications in verses 14 through 17. And I want us to think first about how adoption brings the Spirit's leading. 
As you read verses 14 to 17, one of the things that immediately stands out is that God's people are designated both as children and as sons. And of course, the term sons is generic. It's used to describe both sons and daughters. And so Paul teaches us that this spiritual birthmark of being called sons and daughters of God is due to the work of the Holy Spirit by which we are adopted by God. You might want to circle some of these family terms in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You see it there? Look at verse 15. The word sons is repeated. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we crowd Abba Father. Again, in verses 16 and 17, notice the word children. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, heirs also. So as we think about the Holy Spirit, it's important that we define some terms, especially this term adoption. What does it mean to be an adopted son or daughter of God? I can tell you ahead of time that if you get a hold of this, it will excite you. It is one of our great birthmarks. It is one of the great inheritances that God gives to his people. Now, the word adoption is seldom used in the Bible. It's found nowhere in the Old Testament because the Jews didn't practice adoption. They were given other measures in which to care for orphans and in which to uh, pass on legal inheritances. The word is found only in the New Testament. It appears only five times in the New Testament and three of those times here in the book of Romans. Now, we uh, tend to think of adoption in terms of transferring the legal status of one child from one family into another. However, in the first century, it was a special ceremony whereby a Roman father would go ahead and adopt his son. You say, what for? Well, it was a ceremony that issued him into manhood. And remember, you need to interpret the Bible in terms of its historical grammatical context. And so this, uh, the, the ceremony of adoption literally bestowed upon that son all of the legal rights of being a Roman citizen and a member of that father's family. In the same way, when you are adopted by God, you're adopted into his family with all of the same legal rights and blessings that come with heavenly citizenship. Now, in addition to a Roman adopting his own son or daughter, he could also be involved in adopting someone outside of his family, an orphan, so to speak, and making that person a son or daughter of his with all of the same full rights and privileges. Now, in either case, Roman adoption did three things. First, the adopted person lost all of his rights to his old family and gained legitimately all of a new set of rights to his new family. Secondly, the old life of the adopted person was canceled out. All of his debts would have been taken care of, and he started with a clean, blank sheet. And third, when adoption took place in the first century, the adopted son or daughter received the right to carry on the family name, but also to share in the family inheritance. In fact, this relationship was so binding legally and so complete that as history records, when Emperor Claudius wanted to adopt Nero to be his son so that Nero could follow him as emperor, 
uh, to succeed him on the throne, a man who was in no way, in any way, shape, or form related to him by blood, this emperor, Claudius, who had a daughter by the name of Octavia. When he adopted Nero to be his son, later Nero fell in love with Octavia. But in Roman law, they were considered brother and sister, though they had no blood relationship at all. And yet when Nero wants to marry Octavia, not only to strengthen his kingdom, but because he loved her, he had to go to the Roman Senate, and the Roman Senate had to pass a law allowing it to take place. That's how binding it is. Now, with that background, let me ask you a question this morning. Are you born into God's family or are you adopted into God's family? And of course, the answer is yes. The Bible teaches both. You're both born into God's family and you are adopted into God's family. Spiritually, we are born into God's family. Legally, we are adopted into God's family. And both descriptions are true and you will find yourself very excited if you are able to embrace both of them in your thinking. So on the one hand, we must be born into God's family. Jesus said it three times over. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. It's not enough to be born once. You must be born twice. You must be born again to be a member of God's family and to be a part of his kingdom. Now, the five children that God has blessed me with, they are my children because my life is in each one of them. They are, in one sense, born of me. Likewise, when you are saved, you're placed in Christ. Not only you are forgiven, you are justified, you're declared righteous. And because God declares you righteous and holy, for the first time ever, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And so Paul can say in Romans 8, 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, so he's called the spirit of God there. But if anyone does not have, notice the spirit of Christ, also that title, he does not belong to him. Now, this concurs exactly with 2 Peter 1, 4, where it says we become partakers of the divine nature. That is, we become members of a new family, just as our earthly biological birth enrolled us into an earthly family, our spiritual birth from above enrolls us into God's family. That's why John the Apostle could equally write, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. So when I am saved, something not only happened to me legally, something happened to me vitally, something happened on the inside. Not only did I get a new legal status that we will examine in just a moment, but I also received a new nature as Paul has already underscored here in Romans 8. Now that may seem odd to some of us if someone is born into a family that they also need to be adopted into the same family. But the reason that seems odd is because the way we do adoption today is different from the way adoption was done in the first century and in biblical times. There's a distinct difference between human adoption and divine adoption, between the adoption of the 21st century and the adoption of the first century, the context of which Paul uses to describe divine adoption. So while it is true that like in human adoptions in our day, we are transferred from one family into another. Even so, when we are adopted, we are removed from the kingdom of darkness, as the kids studied in Bible school this week. And by the way, what a magnificent Bible school. What a great week. The biggest one we've ever had, and I think in many ways the best. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children, and thank you so many who work so hard, hundreds of you, thank you. We are delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. What a great and mighty 
privilege. We're brought out of Satan's family into God's family. So before we're saved, Ephesians 2 says, by nature, we are children of wrath. But now with our new nature, we are children of God, sons of God. But it goes beyond that. Now understand, there is a parallel between human adoption and divine adoption. So on the one hand, God adopts us, but he also births us. Why does he both adopt us and birth us? Well, if you have rich parents, say, that are worth, oh, $100 million, and you're born into that family as a little infant, as an infant, you can't go out and spend any of the money. You can't enjoy the inheritance. You can't enjoy the first dime because you're just a little baby infant. But when God adopts us, like in Roman adoption, there's a legality that takes place where you receive all of the rights and privileges that an adult has. So a brand new Christian, like the lady in the first service who just got saved less than an hour ago, she has the same legal rights and blessings as someone who's been saved for 50 years. Now, please understand, when the New Testament speaks of God adopting us, he is using the Roman method of adoption. And unlike human adoption and divine adoption, you are brought into God's family as an adult son with all of the privileges and responsibilities that come through that. Now, we'll see that in just a moment, but it becomes plain as you work through the text. And so it's like this. God can't say, well, Carl, you know, you're not to steal. You're not to lie. You're not to commit adultery. Oh, but Fred or Mary or Sally or Bob or Tanisha, you're just a brand new Christian. It's okay for you to commit adultery or for you to lie or for you to steal. No, 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 no. The new Christian who's been saved hours is just as responsible to the moral law of God as the person who's been saved for many years. And the new Christian has the same adult blessings and rights that the person who's mature in his faith. Now, he may not know all of those rights, and that's why we're to renew our minds and to learn the scripture and find out what is ours in Christ. But unlike human adoption, divine adoption brings you in as an adult son. You say, well, pastor, why is it then that God doesn't just adopt me? Why does he also have to birth me? Why do I have to be born into God's kingdom, born again, and at the same time adopted into God's kingdom? For several reasons. Number one, the legal rights that are yours as an adopted son are spiritual in nature. In Ephesians 1, it talks about how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so for you to be able to enjoy those legal blessings that God has bestowed upon you, you must have a spiritual birth. It would be like, uh, without the spiritual birth, it would be like taking a fish out of water, putting him on a platter, putting flowers all around him, allowing him to be in an air-conditioned home with all the stereophonic sound and all the accruedments of a wealthy home, but it would do him no good. He would feel totally out of place. Why? Because his nature dictates that he needs to live in the water. Likewise, unless you have God's divine nature, unless you uh, have been born from above, you will not be able to experience the spiritual adoption that is also yours. So legally, we are adopted into God's family. Spiritually, we are born into God's family. As Christians, we enjoy not only a birthright, but also an adoption that reinforces how God the Father has purposed to seek us and to bring us into His family. 
to listen again to today's study in its entirety, why not download the Search the Scriptures app for phones and tablets and looking up the blessings of adoption. You can find the app at the iTunes Store or Google Play Store simply by looking for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy. Of course, you can always listen online at our website, searchthescriptures.org. And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, or if you have any questions, give us a call at 877-787-7478. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our look at the blessings of adoption and search the scriptures.